I'm happiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello, and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this time, dear Ramblers, we are in the 80s. It's 1984, and it is another big film. Uh, You lifers, you Retro Ramblers out there who've been following us for a while, it's another big film from the Retro Ramble back catalogue. It's, what are we doing, George? I'll I'll let you introduce it. We're only doing Beverly Hills Cop. Oh my God, yeah, so 1984, and what a segue. If you've been checking out our Patreon episodes, we've been doing a bit of an 80s soundtrack special for our Patreon subscribers, and we've been talking about the amazing music of the 80s, and going back and watching this film, that is one of the things that stuck out to me. What a soundtrack. But we're going to be covering a lot of other ground other than just bopping music, aren't we, George? Oh, absolutely. We've talked about it elsewhere on on some of our stuff on Patreon, but yeah, this film has had a huge impact on the 80s blockbusters. I mean, I'm sure if you did a compilation, that screen grab of, of Eddie Murphy doing the, the AOK sign would, would come up in your your movie montage. And as you say, you know, the, the soundtrack's iconic, you know, really important film for Eddie Murphy's career, which we'll get into. But yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it in years, so it was it was great to go back and, and revisit it. Yeah, so if you've not listened before, you probably don't know what we cover on this podcast, but George We are, what we do. Or why you've downloaded this podcast. But let it be said, we revisit uh, the films of our youth, George and I are brothers. What else else should we tell a first-time listener, George? Uh, So we're we're a little independent film podcast, and yes, it's, it's all about Charlie and I revisiting the films of our youth. It's a light-hearted look back, I think it's fair to say. So there'll be trivia that Charlie and I will be reviewing the, the film in question. We'll be going into it in detail, so there will be spoilers from the very off. We like to have a bit of fun with it, so there might be some childish humour. There might be some swearing, so please be careful if you're listening to this in a car uh, or in a place of work, which I was recently told um, somebody was listening to one of our podcasts at a place of work and got into trouble. So Is yes, that because we said fuck or bugger. Or- it was actually one of our guests dropped drop the C-bomb, apparently. I was like, wow, I don't really wow. remember that. But anyway, yes, so there will be spoilers, there might be swearing, there'll definitely be some bad impressions, but as I say, sit back, enjoy the show as we take a trip back to 1984. Wonderful. Well, while George gets the trailer queued up, I should just let our listeners know that, yeah, I am the older brother. Uh, George is the more knowledgeable one, uh, the one who has studied film, who knows what he's talking about. Uh, And I'm just still trying to get my head around things. But yeah, it's just a bit of banter between two brothers. Uh, Have you got the trailer ready, George? Are Are we good to go? We're good to go. around a little bit do you don't do a damn thing stay out of this you know this is the cleanest and nicest police car i've ever been in in my life this thing's nice in my apartment i just got off the phone with an inspector todd in detroit he says if you're out here investigating the tandino murder how you doing you needn't bother coming back haven't the slightest idea who you're dealing with Look, all three of us are cops. We should be working together. Cover me. Police! You're all under arrest! You do that again, I'll shoot you myself. Now, I'll do something to drink. A wine, a cocktail, a, a espresso. No, I'm fine. Thank you. I'll make it myself right back there with a little lemon twist. It's good. You should try it. Uh-huh. 
So, George, um, a big film for us. I can remember, um, I don't know, I just I feel like I've watched this film so many times and uh, it'll be interesting to talk about what it was like to go back and revisit this, but this was a big film of our youth, was it not? It was, and again, yeah, we'll, we'll probably talk about it later on, but for me, um, I kind of... I have lost the distinction between Beverly Hills Cop and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yes. But we can get into that later. Yes, we can. Because I there were certain scenes that I kept on. When when does that happen? When does that happen? I was yeah. like, that doesn't happen in this film. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, if anybody's listened to our episode where we covered Cobra, that would be our Patreon audience. But we, um, so we do revelations on Patreon, which is films that somehow passed George and I by. There were a lot of films back in the day. And Cobra, featuring our favorite Sly Stallone, was one of them. And there are links to this film. So Beverly Hills Cop has come up, and I'm sure George is going to cover that. But as we've got our tickets ready, we've stolen a truck and we're careering across production chat island with our stolen cigarettes in the back george what can you tell us about how we got this film so this uh film the origins of this film uh date back to the late 70s and i've read conflicting reports but some say it's don simpson so obviously we've talked about you know legendary producers don simpson and jerry bruckheimer but apparently don simpson came up with the idea about a cop who's transferred from you know grimy east l.a to, to Beverly Hills. And then I read uh, another story about a Paramount executive who was stopped by the police because he was driving, like his car was like battered and really old and grimy and he was stopped. And he was like, oh, well, this is such, you know, um, I'm just being, you know, profiled because I've got a crap car. But if I was driving an expensive car in Beverly Hills, the police wouldn't have an issue about it. And so for, for whatever reason, yeah, the origins of this film came up sort of late 70s. Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, they commissioned a screenwriter, uh, Danilo Back, to write the screenplay in 1981 uh, under the working title Beverly Drive uh, about a cop, uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Let's go from Pittsburgh. A cop from Pittsburgh called Ellie Axel. Um, at this point in, in time, it was a straightforward action film. And... It didn't really go anywhere, didn't gain much traction. So after a few rewrites, they brought in uh, another writer, Daniel Petrie Jr., and he wrote the, rewrote the script uh, and added more humour into it, which Paramount loved. There was a, one actor that was attached at the time, and we can get into that later in our feature, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, he dropped out for, for whatever reason. I think it was just taking a while to get the green light. And then... Suddenly, Paramount sent the script to Sylvester Stallone. So this is the part. Apologies if you are a patron. You've already heard this in our in our lovely coverage, our first time watch of the visual feast that is Cobra. Um, <laughs> but yes, the script was was sent to Stallone, and Stallone, um, being Stallone, being you know write, actor, writer, director, rewrites the script to fit his persona better. So he strips out all the comedy again. He writes in, he includes all these elaborate, really complicated action set pieces and makes it really gritty and violent. And uh, Paramount are like, it's great. You, you know, you're taking an interest in this. Um, you're showing all this passion. This is going to be far too expensive and it's not funny. And we want it to be, uh, a, a comedy and uh so i think they uh, there was a mutual agreement to to part ways but the studio said to stallone feel free to take these ideas uh and reuse them for your own uh script as long as you take out that the, the main concept of uh you know a fish out of water cop in beverly hills you know feel free to use the the parts that you've chucked in so um, Stallone goes off and and will eventually go and make Cobra, which I think is 1986. So there's a couple of years down the line. Okay. Um, I think he was probably busy working on Rocky Five. I think, I know, sorry, Rocky Four at that point. Um, but one of the things that he changed in his uh, script, he changed the name of the lead character to Axel Cobretti. And then obviously in the spoiler alert for, for Cobra, he changed it to Marion Cobaretti. 
much more manly. Much more manly. But I think when you've got somebody like Sly at the juncture in his career, the star power he would have, it would be very difficult to say no. And I think that says a lot about uh, Brookheimer and Simpson that they were able to, they were able to obviously attract that sort of talent, manage that sort of talent, and even let that sort of talent rewrite completely the script. And take, sorry, and then still trying to go, mm, you know what? We're yeah. going to have to let you go. You take that. No, it's great. It's great. Yeah. You take it. Go make a move with it. Just don't steal our plot line. Go do whatever you want with that script type thing. I think that shows a lot of um, worldly experience on their part. Yeah. So, I mean, I think as we talked about in our Cobra episode, I think Cobra was like, was pared down uh, significantly, even to the those scripts. Because I think I was reading the set piece for that he, Stallone put at the end of this was like a Lamborghini versus a, a train or something ridiculous like that. Me, yeah, and it's like a, with a really the the really thin bad guy. I was like, what's the relevancy of the thinness of the bad yeah. guy? Yeah, I read that. So yeah, Stallone's enough about Stallone. Stallone's How, what, what impact did that have on this film? So then they they pretty much go back to the original script, and meanwhile, uh, Paramount have been courting uh, Eddie Murphy. So let's talk about Eddie Murphy. So obviously, you and I have covered a couple of uh, Eddie Murphy's trading films. places coming to America. Yeah, so trading places and coming to America—they're very interesting. Uh, points in Eddie Murphy's career because Trading Places is the start of his ascent. I mean, his, you know, his first main role is um, 48 Hours. Obviously, that's a big hit. I think he's still on Saturday Night uh, Live at this point. He does uh, Trading Places and that's a, you know, it's it's a dual hander with with Dan Aykroyd, but that's a huge success. And so, yeah, he he kind of has the you know, the, the pick of, of the parts effectively, and he's getting a bit more star power. Whereas we, when we then covered uh, coming to America, that was kind of Eddie Murphy at his peak. So there, yeah, this is a very interesting point. This is the emergence of, of Eddie Murphy, the movie star. And I think it even says in the, in the opening credits after the, the Simpson Bruckheimer, it's like an Eddie, an Eddie, an Eddie Murphy, Murphy production. Bit. Yeah. So he was obviously looking for that for that big project, and yeah, I think he did loads of projects for like he, you know, in that sort of old school studio system. He was aligned to Paramount for quite some time. I mean, coming to America was Paramount. Uh, I'm trying to think there was there was probably a few others, but he made a lot of money for for Paramount. So they were yeah quite keen. They were like, we're courting Annie Murphy. This script could be perfect for him because you want to make a comedy. He's kind of done action comedy in 48 Hours. But they, even with that said, they still had to rewrite the script to fit his um, style. His style, and and apparently, there's you know there's trivia saying that I think it might even be in the commentary that they were rewriting scenes just before they happened. And there's a scene in the film where the police chief comes in and he's holding this roll of of paper in his hand, and that's the script pages he's just been handed. <laughs> Oh wow! They, they were that like working that fresh and that sort of like right okay, and a lot of it was improv as you can tell, and that's where a lot of the humor comes from. Um, however, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So Eddie Murphy's uh, in the bag. They needed to find a, a director, and uh, several big name directors turned it down. Again, I can cover that in Coulda Woulda Shoulda, but it eventually gets offered to Martin Brest, who at this time had only had one film credit to his name, which was a, a comedy that had sort of done okay. I think it was a film called uh, Going in Style. But he'd also done uh, work as a writer and director on Saturday Night Live. So I haven't been able to work out, but I'm assuming that him and Eddie Murphy's paths had crossed. But Martin Brest... He hasn't done a huge amount of films, but he's done some big films across the 80s and 90s. So he did this. After this, he did Midnight Run, which uh, I think we're going to cover on our Patreon for our first time watch for our revelations, because it's a, a great 80s movie that we didn't see first time around with uh, Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. Then he also, the big next film he did after that was Scent of a Woman with Pacino, which obviously... I've got oh. the Academy Award. Yeah. 
<laughs> so that got the Academy Award for uh, Pacino. And then his last film to date was Meet Joe Black, which was in 1998, yeah. which it's was a good. critical and commercial disappointment. So, yeah, he, he did some big films, but uh, I think, yeah, with, with those three, Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run and Central Woman, you know, he had, you know, he did some very important films to date. And so it's interesting how Brookheimer and Simpson pick their directors, but um, I don't know, but I, I seem to feel like this is one of the films like where the, we talked about it in the intro, but for me, the the name that's bigger than Martin Brest that's gone further is Harold Faltermeyer. Should we talk a little bit about him? I mean, what, when was he brought in? Because you find out like in at what stage back in the day when this film was made, music was probably still a bit of an afterthought. Well, I mean, again, yeah, this... Or maybe it was changing. Maybe it was changing at this point because the theme music, like what he does to this film and how iconic it became, it must have been intentional. Well, again, this yeah, it it goes back to again. Apologies for the the non patrons out there, but yeah, the as you said, the we've just done a special on patron on eighty soundtracks, and we talk about the 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 emergence of of MTV, and that was early eighties as well. So, and the importance of the music video and the soundtrack tie-in, and and yeah, the Bruckheimers had struck gold with with Flashdance, which was obviously a film based around dancing. So it had lots of pop music in it and that had um, a soundtrack produced by uh, the, you know, uh, synth legend that is Giorgio Moroder. And Giorgio Moroder's protege was a guy called Harold Faltermeyer. And Harold Faltermeyer well, yeah, did, does a soundtrack for this and would go on to do uh, Top Gun as well. And also the Running Man, which we covered recently. So yeah, his Harold Faltermeyer's name is is right across you know some of the biggest hits of of the eighties as well. But yeah, for I think this film's really important in terms of develop and from Faltermeyer's point of view, developing help well, along with Giorgio Moroder, helping develop effectively what's still huge is is synth pop uh, effect, uh, you know effectively, isn't it? My favorite, obviously, I'm I'm very musically inclined. Have have tried and attempted to mix for a long time now, um, at least twenty odd years. But yeah, the the fact that the synth is so important to, and we all we all grew up in the '80s. You know, I think it's the guy from um, Booker Shade says that we're all kids of the '80s. We all love electronic music, and it's that's been the biggest leap forward. Was that I think '60s '70s we had the electric guitar. And, you know, like in the 80s, it was the synth. It was the the keyboard. The guitar, unfortunately, didn't take off. But, um, yeah, and what they get right is just there's that. Because, unfortunately, my son, Jules, is a very big fan of that ripoff, um, The Crazy Frog. And like, oh, yes. It, I was going to say, without this film, we wouldn't have The Crazy Frog. Or without the media and the music oh. industry getting running out of ideas, we wouldn't have the crazy frog. But when he plays, I'm like, no, it's not the original. And like when I've played the original, he's like, but where's the funny bits? And it's obviously, yeah, it's oh, yeah. for a child's sense of humor. Um, but I Sorry. love that. Uh, I've, on a complete different segue, I saw a meme uh, this week where it was like weird confessions and someone said, I lost my virginity to the crazy frog. And then there was a, a point after to clarify I lost my virginity while listening to Crazy Frog, not, <laughs> not to the Crazy Frog. Not that, not the weird CGI guy on the bike. Yeah, so I, I would, so I think, yeah, this was, and just talking about the music briefly, this was an amazing moment for synth pop, and it was used brilliantly. And I just think in the opening scene, uh, you've got Neutron Dance by the Pointer Sisters, and it just what's that other song that's uh, that I dis- rediscovered watching this film that's in uh, the vacation movies? Is it's like it's um... well, there's 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 Neutron Dance and then there's uh, Stir It Up, isn't it? Stir It Up. That's yeah. it. I'm sure that's in a vacation movie. Uh, possibly. And <laughs> let's not forget the the classic opener, which is only featured very the heat. very briefly. The heat is on. Yeah, but h- how many times? Because what's weird is because that's Harold Fontmeyer, isn't it? No, that's uh, that's Glenn Frey, who was part of the Eagles. Okay, but I mean, the fact that that is such an iconic tune and that I'm guessing that that was released as part of this film soundtrack. Oh, absolutely. And like every, you know, sort of 80s pop hit, it's got a saxophone solo. It's got a guitar solo. A bit like Maniac, where you've got like 
saxophone oh and, and guitar, was, was just, like almost dueling against each other. Just just to show how much George and I live the brand, I was I was walking along the streets today listening to Maniac, and I think I was saying the lyrics out loud and really terrifying my Whilst, fellow um, I've just got subway vision, passengers. <laughs> I've just got visions of you shuffling down the subway side to side. No, it's just when I'm speaking the lyrics of Maniac, uh, you know, it's like she's a cruel, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, I mean, I think the, the just to jump back to that point, the Bruckheimer and Simpson, they saw the value in and the importance of a film soundtrack and how much extra, you know, in a era before DVD, obviously the, the, you know, the VHS rental market was out there, but in terms of extra revenue for a film, getting the film's, turning out a hit soundtrack full of like, you know, the latest pop songs, people were going to rush out and buy it immediately. And it was, you know, it was affordable. And that's why, you know, you look at this and then you look at Top Gun and yeah, we get into that era where it was like, right, we've got this big movie out coming out. We need, we need some hits. We need some pop stars to work on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's just going back to this film. It's like the muscle memory kicks in. It's like, Oh, now they're using this track. Now they're using this track. And I feel like I've discovered at least one track. I don't know if it's at the end of the film when the credits roll, but I didn't associate with this film that I didn't recognize, like a really good 80s um, track, which I'll include in the notes. Um, but is there anything else we need to cover or should we, should we talk about the movie itself? Uh, no, I, th- I, think, I think let's just talk about uh, the film itself. Wow. I mean, it's. I like how... What we we talked about earlier about uh, Eddie Murphy being in Trading Places, so that was before this film, obviously. Um, but I did see some similarities in the opening credits about lots of cityscapes, the uh, montage of of grimy Detroit. Re- re- yeah. We'll replace Philadelphia with grimy Detroit. Yeah, and and just to make that real, uh, let's show the paradox between the two scenarios, and and very much the the fish out of water. Now, uh, I don't know if there's a lot to say about the opening scene other than the amazing amount of physical destruction, which I think as a young, as a young boy watching this film, that's what got your juices going back then. Which is smash the cars, destroy everything, a big truck going oh, around town. Absolutely. There's so much carnage, you know, pun intended, but it's like the guy's just like, who's driving the truck is just going nuts. And it's just like, why don't you just run away? <laughs> maybe, maybe if I go faster, I'll, I'll be able to control this truck more. <laughs> yeah. That's that's one of the key moments that I, I remember, but I don't remember. It's weird in my memories of, of this film. I kind of blur out the the I suppose that bit with where it where his friends turns up and they have that quick, you know, established bond, which, you know, you know, to go back to some of our our old slogans, it is some, uh, you know, economic exposition. You quickly get to the case that these guys are friends, even though they're on different sides of the law now. And it, you know, it's it's a believable friendship. But I kind of forget. I forgot about that part as a kid because I suppose it's always skipped to the the funny stuff. Skipped to him being in Beverly Hills. I definitely relate to that, and that does sound familiar because I, I mean, I don't think I thought about it much back in the day. But I kind of feel like it's like, yeah, he's doing all of this for Mikey, but like because it's given short economic shrift at the beginning it's like i think in the space of like 30 seconds we find out that they grew up together they used to steal cars together that mikey went to prison for axel and that he'll never forget him type thing so there's an amazing amount of economic exposition that goes on but i can remember growing up as a kid like all of it is like this is for mikey this and jenny you know she talks about mikey and like we barely know this guy. You know, yeah. we're still trying to recover from the opening car chase as a young kid. Like, who, who, who is, who is Mikey again? <laughs> and, and I suppose that's also, it's also setting up the reason why he's such a good cop. The fact that he knows, and it's something, again, we, we can chat about this later, that they really dial up in the sequel. It's like, okay, he's got all these skills in terms of, you know, identifying the coffee grounds and picking locks and all these little sort of hustles and things like that, that he's, he's obviously actually lives. a good cop. He's actually a good cop. Yeah. But he's a good cop, but he also has the street smarts as well. He's not your average yeah. cop. He's willing to break a few rules. Yeah. He's not a straight shooter. He's not. Um, and that, I think that's that they, they turn that up to 11. Um, I do think 
I do think how what they really get right in this film is the tempo of the relationship of like how he's both in, he's revealed, you know, he's undercover, then he's sort of like coming out of his shell. But when he's, he doesn't really come out of his shell until he's in, um, you know, in, in Beverly Hills. And then it's just, I feel like everybody else is like watching him in, in action. And yeah. like, it's like he's playing off everybody else. But the movie is basically his reaction and people's reaction to his reaction of them, you know, throughout. So like Victor Maitland, um, you know, Judge Ryan. Holt yeah, and, uh, pretty, you know, pretty much every, every, everyone is the straight man, apart yeah. from Serge, uh, uh, as covered oh. in, in the trailer. Serge in a blink and you miss it cameo. I mean, it's a brilliant cameo from, uh, is it what's he called? Bronson Pinchot, who obviously cropped up uh, as the slimy movie, movie exec in, in True Romance. Yeah, an amazing, an amazing role. But um, I just, I think that's what I remember this film from, from when we were younger. We obviously love the shootouts. We love the car chases. But these, the comedy did not pass us by. There is obviously a level of comedy. Um, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but when Eddie Murphy does the whole thing about I've been in the clinic. I've been in the clinic. Maybe I should go and tell him myself. And I'm sorry. So I still think, even though you probably wouldn't get away with that scene today, I still think it's very funny. I still think it's done. It's done in character. It's um, it, it's obviously slurring a, an entire populace, you know, by suggesting yeah. that. But but it's it's brilliantly done. It's a sign of the times. Times were different by then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there there are some very much like I say. This is this is Eddie Murphy's star on the rise, and there are clearly some scenes that have been very hastily improvised or he's, he, as we say, he's retrofitted the script to his, his uh, persona, but yeah, the part where he's checking into the hotel and that that's it. That's uh, so synonymous with the role of, of uh, Axel Foley, the fact that he's a complete, you know, he's a blagger, he's a bullshitter. Yeah. And then the fact where he's, you know, I'm Rolling Stone magazine. Jackson. <laughs> um, and again, it's something that the, the sequel dials up. And I suppose the, well, I suppose we should get into it now uh, a little bit. Um, we may, we may cover it um, oh, at some f- stage further down the line, but the reason I get confused with this and Beverly Hills Cop 2 is because Beverly Hills Cop 2, for, for better or worse, is just a, a a really bad version of a sequel of saying, let's do more of that. Let's let's do more. It is beat for beat. I was thinking that when I watched yeah. this, because like you, that bit where he, he talks his way into the club, uh, doing the doing that that's yeah. that skit. Um in the second one, he talks his way in pretending he's got explosives. And then the fact that he talks his way in the hotel, I was like, when does he, when is he the foreman who talks his way into that house? Oh, that's in the second. Yeah. When, when's, yeah, so John, kind of, when's Johnny Wishbone and. Yeah. So it is kind of beat for beat, but the thing is we still love the second one. We still, oh, we went back for more. We went back. Oh, for more. Absolutely. And you know, the second one is it's a Tony Scott movie. So it's slicker. It's bigger. Yeah. The action's bigger. And I think that's why yeah, my memories are sort of like, and we talked about it in previous episodes. We like, it's weird growing up with films in the eighties. There was always, especially as kids, there was always that mindset that the sequel was always better because it was newer. Um, yeah. It was, it was more recent and obviously it probably, uh, it was, it, they were promoting it more. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's some great bits in this and I love the way he works with, um, with Rosewood and, oh, well, we, we've got to give a bit of a shout out who's I think he's in I don't know if he's in, in all three of them, but um Eddie Murphy's boss, Inspector Todd. Oh, I was gonna I was gonna say at the beginning, when are we gonna talk about Captain Todd? That, uh, that uh, guy. Angry black chief, but apparently I, I only realized reading in my notes that that guy was they when they were uh, location scouting in Detroit, he was a policeman showing them around. He's a real policeman in in real life, and they were like you're amazing. Do you want to be in the film? He's like, yeah, okay. Um, so I yeah. was wondering when you were going to offer me a part. <laughs> I feel uh, like and you said something like that. But yeah, he's he's awesome in it, and he's the way he just like gives. Uh, and we're, uh, I suppose a blink and you miss it again. Dialed Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser, everyone's favorite shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm I'm really hot right now. Uh, just give me a little part. I just need to be in movies. Just just put me somewhere. Put me somewhere. Yeah, this the the snivelly guy. Do do love a bit of Paul Reiser. Um, but yeah, Captain Todd, I think the fact that he's there and like, he's the reminder of the fish out of water where, where 
where Foley's come from. He's he's the reminder. It's like it's the time limit. It's the fact that he makes trouble wherever he goes. You know, and it's yeah. like it sounds cynical for me to say it, but like if somebody could, and I'm sure some exec somewhere is trying to work it out. If someone could take, or probably has done, I just can't connect the two. Take this idea and turn it into a Netflix or Amazon series. They would. You know, it's like you know he's not allowed there. He creates trouble wherever he goes, but he's a great detective. But I, I love I love that character, and I and I love the fact that going back and watching this, he's featured in the second one. I remember, but it's a much smaller part. Is that right? Yeah. Again, I think it's the the, the second one is like let's bring everyone back. So they bring back um, yeah Gilbert R Hill as Inspector Todd. They bring back Paul Reiser. Obviously, you've got um, Taggart and Rosewood. Um, That's why it's so confusing. Yeah, it is. It is very much a beat for beat, and I think even in the third one. For reasons, uh, though, I haven't seen. I think I've only seen the third one once because it's so awful. But they bring back Surge in the third one, and Surge is now an arms dealer. It makes no sense right. at all. Um, and I think the the reason for the third one is that Inspector Todd is killed. Maybe I don't know. Um, again, we'll get down that get to that film uh, way down the line. Uh, yeah, no, not in a big rush down to that. And then I don't want to quote any internet memes, but you know what we're going to do now? Now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Mike from Breaking Bad. The Zach mm-hmm. character, Jonathan Banks, uh, that it took me a few watches of Breaking Bad. It's like, is that the guy from Beverly Hills Cop? What a career. Yes. And uh, again, uh, he had a very uh, small role on the other side of the law in Gremlins. He's one of the cops in Gremlins. Yeah, which would have been year before. I think Gremlins is eighty three. Um, Such a deadpan delivery. So yeah, Jonathan Banks uh, as yeah, good old Mike from Breaking Bad. He's brilliant in this. He's a real hissable bad guy. Yeah, I, I love the fact that it's the seething. You know, like from yeah. the other side of the room, like so just... much, so much rage, pent up rage exactly. in that man. But uh, I think he's bringing a lot of the cop side to him. You know, I think it's just like, yeah, I, I know how to look like a bad guy. Very character acting. Um, and then he would go on to develop into this amazing, a different type of actor, a different type of performance, you know, so. But Charlie, who else on the really evil front who's on a roll right now? So you have Britain's own Stephen Burkoff. Who Drag, so, dragon dragonfly one? So we have. Is this hot off the heels of Rambo three? No, so no, this that is was later. That was later. So he has real run of of Hollywood bad guy. Uh, he was obviously had a few um, tax bills to pay. Stephen Burkoff, who was traditionally a you know a quite renowned, quite intense. Uh, British theatre actor. For some reason, he obviously, his agent got him in Hollywood. So 1983, he's a crazy Russian bad guy in Octopussy, which we'll cover later in the year. Uh, 1984, he's Victor Maitland in this. And then I think 1985, he is another crazy Russian, I see you are no stranger to pain in (laughs) Rambo 2. So yeah, he has... Rambo 2. He's Rambo 2. Rambo 2 is the ones are such colorful names. Yeah. Uh yeah yeah we we that was probably one of our uh, well it is it is it is off. let's let's stop poking around the bush. Rambo 1 is probably the better film but our favorite when we were younger was definitely the second one with Victor Maitland. Charlie what the sequel's is- always better. Sequel's always better. Exactly. We're back in that mindset. So what else was he in around that time or did he say right that's enough for me. I've done Rambo. I'm out I, I I think that was it. Like that was his like his Hollywood hot streak. Um I mean he he does crop up let's have a a a quick a quick glance at his uh yeah, it's known for Octopussy, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, he was in A Clockwork Orange, apparently. Uh, yeah, no, he's one of the goons. I think, or is he one of the... I think he's a, a policeman. I mean, he's still working now, bless him. He's he's uh, he's working away. I mean, he hasn't been in much stuff uh, of of note. Um, but yeah, he's he's still working away, the crazy bastard. Um, but I mean that's one thing to say about this film is that as George and I say many times on this podcast the 80s were like TV what it was so many great well established character actors quite a few pop up in this film and no other than talking about bad guys Um, should we talk about Sir Ronnie Ronnie of the Cox variety 
Yes, yes, of course. So, um, Ronnie, Ronnie Cox, we've talked about how much uh, our love for him in, in Robocop and Total Recall. Um, and they were a, a, de- a departure of sorts for, for Ronnie Cox. So again, yeah, I touched on that in, in those episodes, I think in the seventies, he was like known as like more for more fatherly sort of gentle roles. And I think this, this role of Bogomil was the turning point of him whilst he's almost like a fatherly character. And again, I think they dial this up in the sequel. Uh, he's still quite hard nosed and hard assed and, you know, knows how to give them a grilling that would, quite sort of seamlessly transition into I'm Dick Jones. Yeah, exactly. He does go from from one to the other. I but I like the this this was like you could see the transformation from a fatherly figure into yeah. fuck him. Um yeah I'm Dick Jones. Dick uh, Jones <laughs> Yeah so gotta gotta love the guy but I think what what I like about this film and we've talked about uh we haven't talked about uh sorry George Reinald what a performance from him like he's obviously super young just loving being in this film. He's so yeah, having a great time. Uh, yeah, he is the equivalent of a, a human Labrador, isn't he? He's yeah. like he's he's so like just wide-eyed, loving everything. And yeah, you know, another another sort of uh, recurring actor got a lot of work in the in the eighties. Um, and it's a shame that yeah, he is like his career kind of sort of petered out in sort of in the nineties a bit. Um, but yeah, he's he's fantastic in this, and and probably even better. One of the highlights, I mean, they really dial up his character in the sequel as as the gun nut uh, with yeah. with his own Cobra poster uh, for yeah. from for an Easter egg. But yeah, he's um, I love the the relationship between uh, him and uh, Taggart, and apparently they were they were told to sort of play it like they were like an old married couple, like constantly bickering. Well, that 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 comes through, um, you know, absolutely. But yeah, I think that that's a really good dynamic. And then and I, I also what think what works well is, if I'm right at the time, it was a nice diversion from the buddy cop films. The fact that it wasn't just one on one. There's a local cop and there's a guy from out of town. They hate each other, but guess what's going to happen? Um, the fact that there was two of them, you know, and there, there was this dynamic and there was the girl. I, I, I like the number of characters and as we were just talking about earlier, there's some serious sleuthing going on. His other side of the tracks mentality, he's working out the case, adding value to it. And there is a plot. We all know where it's going. And if you forget where it's going, <laughs> it's just, the wait 80s. The sec- just wait for the second <laughs> film. There's going to be yeah. a shootout at the end. Yeah, but it's, it's all of the 80s. It always comes back to either bearer bonds or drugs. <laughs> I was thinking that at the beginning, it's like, damn, Barabons, what was going on in the 80s with Barabons? It's like, was this, the, were they, they were basically the crypto, the crypto of early 80s were Barabons. Yeah. And, I, and obviously, I'm not, I, I know, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm pretty sure that our entire financial system still depends on Barabons, but let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, Barabons and, and drugs as well. That's what I hold. Well, You've got to have drugs. What are you going to do without? a big suitcase full of bearer bonds to buy a lot of drugs with. Indeed. That's make, what makes the world go round. So uh, I think we've covered everything apart from we, we talked about, you know, it, the film's got to end in a big shootout. And again, this links back to another Retro Ramble episode. Big the house. The house is also the same house from Commando. It's the General's Mansion from Commando, which in real life, I think, belonged to silent film star Harold Lloyd. I remember that trivia fact from Commando. But they share the common theme. They're both trying to rescue someone called Jenny. (laughs) Can't get enough of that. This just It also goes to show that you can still have a shootout with seven people. As, yes. as handguns and shotguns, as opposed to seventy, and you know, the, the, but with the same seven people. Yeah, um, <laughs> put a moustache on him. <laughs> Going to put a wig on you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, no, it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. But again, I, again, it's those crossed wires of. Um, you know, remind, reminding myself, what's in this? What's in the sequel? Where's the bit with the rocket launcher? That's in the second one at the clay, yeah. the place where Bogomil was running. It's all coming back to me. I think, like we were saying before, the sequels are better. I like you. I remember so much more of the second one. Like with this, was quite a um, 
you don't, you never forget the main um, bits of this film. But like, oh yeah, that's in the sequel. Oh yeah, that's yeah. in the sequel. But I think that's not our fault. They are quite similar. Yeah, I think effectively, like the sequel is like a more expensive remake of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Bridget Nielsen with Bridget Nielsen you think you could give my wife some work I'm not going to do anything with the script but you're going to take my wife (laughs) okay so we have covered production chat we've gone through the film I think yes I think I've definitely got um, I've got it's Jeff Goldblum and Celine uh, knocking on our door your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could they didn't stop to think if they should so coulda, woulda, shoulda is where George enlightens us, as was the style at the time of the 80s, when a film was out and they were looking for cast. Um, a lot of agents were contacted. So this is where George tells us the actors and sometimes the directors who were considered for films but weren't chosen. So, George, what do you got for us? Well, you get, you're getting both in this coulda, woulda, shoulda. It's, it's a bump around. So we're getting actors and directors that were considered so uh, we we talked about Stallone was was in the frame early on, but before Stallone passed on the script and completely changed it to fit his ego, I mean uh, his persona, um, Mickey Rourke was attached and it signed a four hundred thousand dollar pay or play deal. And whilst the film was get, you know took a while to get a green light, he left the project to do uh, another film. I think he still got paid for it because the film wasn't going anywhere. But apparently other actors that were considered uh, included Richard Pryor, which kind of makes wow. sense. Oh, yeah, um, the comedy the com- the comedy lines. Yep, yeah. And again, you know, 1983, he did Superman, Superman 3. 3. So, yeah, he was still, you know, f- fairly big. Another name we mentioned earlier on in the podcast related to Central Woman, Al Pacino. Um, and also wow. connected six degrees of Kevin Bacon, uh, connected to Al Pacino. You've got uh, everyone's favorite wife beater, James Khan. I mean, wife beater, as in his character in in Godfather. I'm not talking about in real life. Uh, I don't Just, want I don't want James Khan turning up at my door with a baseball. He bat. did not make enough movies, in my opinion, over his career. Um, so yeah, I would have liked to have seen him. It's in some role in this film, and. Harrison Ford apparently was offered the role of Axel Foley, but turned it down. I really just cannot see that <laughs> at all. But um, okay, so Raiders was eighty one, so he was in Prime. Th- this is after a year after Return of the Jedi. So yeah, but I, I just I don't. I just it would be I, a I completely think... different film. It's it's like the still well apart from Richard Pryor, all those other one, all those other actors: Al Pacino, James Caan, Mickey Rourke, Harrison Ford and Stallone could go in so many different directions. Yeah. Now, I, I, th- I think they were, they were kind of, they were having, you could, you could say that they were playing with this, this concept of how, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Taboo, the whole, the racist element was in, in, in the US, like uh, in trading places, it comes up and he's slap bang in the middle, you know, and he is like, he is, he's satiring the state of things in America. You know, there's that, yeah, um, that line from Mortimer. It's like if you think I'd hand over the running of our company, um, you know. So there's this stuff like that, and in this, they're like they're they're totering up to. So my point is, I can't imagine this film working as well without a black actor. Yeah, satiring that that a black actor turns up in a beaten up car in Beverly Hills. Sorry, not a black actor, a black cop turns up in the eighties at yeah. this time. It wouldn't have had the same sort of impact. Yeah, it helps, I say, with the whole fish out of water. And yeah, in some ways, that's why it's a very, you know, a thematic sequel almost to to Trading Places. Well, you've got the the Bogomil is like we're not really comfortable with your type. Yeah, Beverly Hills, you know, I think that they're all just like so straight laced and white, you know, I I just think it really, really does stand out as what the, you know, the message was. Yeah. Um, And in terms of directors, um, apparently uh, David Cronenberg was offered the chance to direct and turn it down again. That would have made a very interesting film. Um, But also uh, Scorsese turned it down because he felt uh, the concept was too similar to a film called Coogan's Bluff, which is uh, a Clint Eastwood film where I think he's like a, a a Texan sheriff that has to go to New York. It's like a yeah fish out water cop 
similar thing that was in the when was Coogan's Bluff at nineteen sixty eight. Okay, so that's quite quite early on in uh, Flint's career. Anyway, so yes, that there, there you have it. Um, a very uh, some very d- different options, as I say, the, the film could have turned out very differently for a number of reasons, number of actors, number of directors. It could have gone some crazy different ways, but without Beverly Hills Cop, we wouldn't have had Eddie Murphy's career or Cobra by Sylvester Stallone. Um, so I think we, we've covered everything we normally cover. George, what was it like for you um, in terms of the revisit what what was it like for you going back and watching this film uh, today in 2023 at the time of recording? Well, it's, it's a funny one. I think I've talked about the, the second film a lot, um, and I think I've seen that more recently and probably more often, as I say, you know, to, to link back to what we were talk, talking about, because it's more action-packed. And as a result, this film... And this is, it sounds like a disservice to this film, but it feels quite small in comparison. I don't know if you feel the same, but I think it's such an important film for, for both Eddie Murphy's career and the, you know, the Simpson Bruckheimer, um, you know, legacy as well of that, that formula essentially that they have. But yeah, f- for me, it's really weird trying to untangle because the the second one's so similar and yeah, just let's repeat the the beat, the same beats but make it bigger, make it flashier, make it more Tony Scott. Um <laughs> it is um yeah, the, I say it does feel quite quite quaint, but it's such a, a brilliant example of Eddie Murphy's star power. And I think if this film didn't happen for whatever reason, I think Eddie Murphy would still be a star. You know, he would go on and do something else. But it's a great example of of Eddie Murphy's, you know, of his chops, the fact that he pulls off the comedy stuff, but he's a believable action lead as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, what's crazy, and I'm going to agree with you, I mean, Christ, it's almost like we're brothers, but yeah, it's the fact that there's so much in this film that would go on and become, it did so much for the movie industry, for the action film industry especially, but I feel like what we're seeing in this film was a lot of things being tried out for the first time, almost like a production line. You know, it's like, so we're going to get this 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 up-and-coming comedian, we're going to get this amazing soundtrack, and we're going to have, obviously, Brooke Hammer and Simpson. Uh, we're going to have some reliable set pieces. We're going to cater to the um, the tastes of the majority of our demographic who are going to the cinema. Yeah. And we're going to do it in a way that has a mixture of comedy, action, and drama, and suspense. And that's what I... So I look at this film exactly the same as you. I, it's like, I remember the second one because... It's glossier. It's more Tony Scott. There's more depth given to all of the characters. Everything that he does in the second one has a purpose and it's linked up. And actually at the end of it, it all links together in a very good, in a, in a believable, acceptable detective plot. Whereas in the first film, yeah, I just feel like it was a testing ground, but what a testing ground. And like, you look at this film, as say a production line. It's a production line that just splits off into so many different ways because from this film, you have Eddie Murphy's career. And then from this film, you have like the music mm-hmm. impact on films. You have Brookheimer and Simpson. You had this type of film. Yeah. Uh, I think you sent me a link just to go slightly off tangent, but keeping it in the 80s. George sent me a link today about um, Arnie and um, cool. Dolph, Dolph Lundgren, Lundgren being caught in, in, uh, in Gold's Gym. And what Arnie, you could just see the respect that Arnie has for Dolph. It's about what it is movies you know, did for the industry. That That's yeah. what he's like saying is that what, what the 80s did for action films was yeah. amazing. That's Arnie's opinion of it. And he's absolutely right. And I think you can't talk about the effect of this, of, of that era without this film being part of that. Well, it's, it's funny. I just uh, finished watching on Amazon uh, is the film Air, you know, um, the Ben Affleck film that's all about the Michael Jordan. I didn't realize that was out already. I, I've, I've been seeing all the bill, but all this stuff, that's, that's the world we live in. When I see something like that, I'm like, oh, that's out of the cinema. I'm going to catch it soon. It's out well, on Prime now. Okay. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's the new, um, the new model that they're trying. So instead of doing what they did during the pandemic, which was like day and date release where you'd get it at the cinema and you could, you know, the, the failed Warner Brothers model where you could, or you could just watch it straight away on streaming. You could pay, you know, the... 15, 16 pounds to watch on streaming. What some of them, I think it's more Netflix and Amazon are doing now 
they'll give it a limited cinema run for about six weeks and then it goes on on prime so um yeah so air is is all about you know nike um who are the underdog in 1984 trying to sign uh michael jordan and it's all about the you know the legacy of of the whole air jordan thing but because it's set in 1984 you get an, um, an 80s montage at the start with Beverly Hills Cop, and even later on in like f- throughout the film, it's got low. It's got a great eighties soundtrack. Oh, with Fault to my Pointer Sisters. Yeah, <laughs> and, and sure enough, you get the you know for a, a, a small bit in the film, you get the Axel F uh, theme plays in the film. So it's it's such an iconic uh, soundtrack. It's such a, an iconic film of of eighties pop culture, and yeah, it's again a bit like we've just you know took our time to cover superman one and two i think it's such a big film for our our generation that's why it's taken us a while to to cover it because we wanted to to do it justice yeah and i think we had we not just come off the back of a bumper one hour 50 episode where we covered superman one and two we might have been open and in some retroflect probably would have been a good idea to do beverly hills cop one and two together but um fear not listeners i i think george and i would both be happy uh to go back and do beverly hills cop two when the dust has settled on this one indeed indeed well no it was a lot of fun to, to go back and, and revisit this film. I know it's going to be uh, a, like a, a favorite film of, of many people or a favorite Eddie Murphy film, a favorite 80s film. But yeah, it'd be good to to hear people's thoughts. What are your thoughts uh, between this and the sequel? You know, do you enjoy the sequel as much as, as we do? Um, and have you revisited the film recently? Uh, it'd be good to get, you know, some listeners' thoughts. Yeah, what a, let us know about your own recent revisits. Okay. Um, anything else we need to mention before we sign off, George? No, just the usual platitudes of thank you to to all of our listeners. Thank you for our for all the ongoing support. Thank you to our patrons. Um, if you're new to listening to to Retro Ramble and you've enjoyed this episode, uh, we've we, you know we're over a hundred episodes now. So please go and check out our, our other episodes. But more importantly, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice, or tell a, fr- a like-minded friend, or just send us your Apple login details and we'll do it for you. Um, okay, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, for this episode, I've been Charlie McGee. I've been George McGee. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Bye bye.